Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephan, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephan, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephan. But they could not understand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him... All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The face of an angel. What would it be like to have the face of an angel? Well, in modern day America, the idea is usually one of feminine beauty. She has the face of an angel. And I have certainly nothing against feminine beauty. I must admit that what first attracted me to Becky was her wonderful form. And I was young. Give me a break. But would any Jew, anyone, really at all, from the first century, ever think of an angel that way? Nope. Not even vaguely. <laughs> In fact, such an idea would have been completely foreign to them. For one thing, they would certainly have been thinking of a male. Would we picture something like this? Uh, these four pictures are pretty common for American male models, <laughs> uh, except for that middle one. Uh, that's interesting. That's a computer composite of multiple men. It was 20, if I remember correctly. I lost my notes on it. So this is supposed to be the average guy, is that middle guy. So do any of these have the face of an angel? What did Luke mean when he said Stephen had the look of an angel on his face? Well, I think we can find our answer in four statements the Holy Spirit drove Luke to make about Stephen. The first is in the qualifications which Stephen possessed, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And he noted that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then Stephen full of grace and power. And last, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. As we look through these four statements, I think we'll learn why they all saw the face, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's consider first that Stephen was full of the spirit and wisdom. You probably noticed that Luke started and ended mentioning the Holy Spirit's indwelling of Stephen. Clearly, he considered it to be of paramount importance. And we talked some about being filled with spirit the last time. But how does that relate to appearing like an angel? Consider this. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Why would John fall down to worship an angel? He knows better than that. Perhaps, perhaps, because he saw the Holy Spirit in the face of that angel. That angel was filled with the Holy Spirit far beyond what John or we have ever experienced. Maybe John thought he was gazing into the face of a manifestation of the Holy Spirit himself. Wow, that'd be amazing, right? And it would be a clear explanation of John's confusion. But the point is, for us, the angel was that filled with the Spirit. And what were the thoughts of that angel? He served God and wanted all glory and, of course, worship to go to God. Every passage we read in Scripture about angels shows how vibrantly they express this characteristic. They want the glory to go to God. The face of an angel, you see, reflects that of his creator. It is not a face concentrated on self, but one that looks to God for all things. Stephen had the face of an angel. So what of Stephen's wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So awe and reverence and knowledge of God, the foundation of wisdom. Since we already talked about wisdom last time also, let's just look at an angel demonstrating wisdom. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now Jude says nothing good about people who take power into their own hand and blaspheme. You have to read it. It's really good. Our point is, Michael is wise. He knows his limits. He knows God's word, what God had told him. And an explanation, by the way. At the time of Moses' death, God sent Michael, the archangel, to bury Moses. God did not want the people to bury him because he didn't want them to know the burial site. He knew they'd end up turning it into a shrine and eventually they would begin to worship this false god that they would call Moses. Satan, on the other hand, yeah, had an interest in leading the children of Israel astray and trying to carry out this plan. So Michael, sent to stop him, knew he couldn't yet fight Satan. But he also knew what God had told him to do. So that which was beyond his power, he turned over to God. He was wise. A person might have the face of an angel if they do what they can do and wisely and confidently leave the rest to their creator. Stephen had the face of an angel. Luke also noted, our second main point, That Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So faith then is also somehow related to being filled with the Spirit. If you are full of the Holy Spirit, you will be full of faith as well. Now, faith, some say, is believing something that cannot be proved. No, (laughs) not quite. That's true. The scriptures say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
I like Dr. Young's literal translation. And faith is of things hoped for, a confidence. Of matters not seen, a conviction. Okay, I like that one. But it's like this. Somebody's lost in the wilderness. They have no food. They have no water, no shelter, and night falls. Both the sounds in the dark and the cold make them shiver and shake. No one can help them or even find them until the morning. They long for the morning. They hope for the morning. They have faith that the morning will arrive. But how? Why? Well, first, they have experience. Morning has always, all their life, followed night. And they have confidence it will this time as well. Second, they know the nature of the universe. The earth spins on its axis. The sun burns as a nuclear furnace with fuel for a billion years. Thus, with conviction, they know the sun will shine on them again. They have faith. little fun one. You remember John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when he was serving in the temple? For years, he and his wife had prayed for a son. Years, decades. And God did not give them one. Now, after a long life, he had this special temple duty of bringing all the prayers of the nation to God in the inner court of the temple. Certainly the only time he did it in his whole life. So he's all by himself. No one else there. So, he thought, might as well, one last time, slip in a prayer of his own. So he asked just once more for a son. And God answered him. He sent an angel right into the temple where Zachariah was. And the angel gave him the good news. You're going to have a son, Zach, and what a son. And what does Zachariah, after a lifetime of asking, say? I'm too old. Elizabeth is too old. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, you dolt. Sorry, I couldn't help myself with that. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. What's the matter with you? You've been asking for this all your life and now I miraculously appear to tell you that it's going to happen and you say, how can it be? Where's your faith? Gabriel had faith. Remember, it hasn't happened yet. Elizabeth is not pregnant. But Gabriel treats it as a fact. How can he do that? Because he has experience with God. He will assure you, when God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. And Gabriel knows the nature of God. He stands in his presence. With conviction, he will tell you, God is one who keeps his promise. It is his nature. The face of an angel in wisdom shows settled confidence in God. You want to have the look of an angel on your face? Gain more experience with God and note how he acts. Learn more of God so that you can understand how he behaves. Seven had the face of an angel. But now Luke goes in a new direction and tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power. Grace. Okay, before we delve into discussion of grace, let's have a little lesson in textual criticism. Set the sermon off to the side for a moment. And don't worry, we'll come back to it. But I want to talk about the science of textual criticism. Okay, I'll get you stretching in. Ready to go? Okay. 
Here we go. Before the invention of the modern of modern printing, all copies of anything were made by hand. Um, this, of course, includes all the works of the Bible. For instance, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he sent it, as he had his gospel, to the man Theophilus. Theophilus loved what he read. Almost certainly he became a Christian and wanted to spread the word. He was also wealthy, so he hired a copyist, probably three or four. And he sent these copies to friends in different cities. Now, works like this were read in public places back then, and probably in every city where Theophilus sent them, more people wanted copies, so they hired other copyists and so on. Now, if you're scratching your head as to why I mentioned this, it may be because your translation that you read says grace, like the ESV that I read. But some translations say faith instead of grace. And many people want to know why these minor differences exist. Now, I know that isn't much of a difference when you take the whole of Scripture. It's not like there's any doctrinal issue in danger here. But let's spend just a minute to get some history here so we can understand this. Because I love history. And if you don't, you can just take a nap here and we'll wake you up when we're done. So, a core issue in the Reformation was whether untrained people should be allowed to read the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church at that time believed only the church should read the Bible. And by the church, they didn't mean people who came. They meant the trained clergy, monks, theology professors, priests. That's, that's all that was the church. Those who attended the Mass and went to confession were not considered the church. And they still aren't, by the way. In Roman Catholic theology, the church is only the priests and the people who run it. So the church leaders who started the Reformation believed that everyone should be able to read the Bible. And they quickly realized that it would need to be translated into whatever language people read in their particular country. Now, all scholars at that time throughout the world used Latin. Uh, most people didn't read Latin. <laughs> so these good people started by taking the Bible, most of them used, it was called the Latin Vulgate, and translating from it into German, French, English, etc. But they quickly realized that there was a problem. The Bible wasn't written in Latin. <laughs> the New Testament was written in Greek. But there were few Greek scholars and even fewer known copies of the New Testament in Greek. So you enter the great scholar Erasmus, and a printer, by the way, who wanted to make some money. <laughs> Remember, the printing press had just been invented, and for the first time ever, almost anyone could afford a book. There was a huge demand for copies of the New Testament in Greek. Everybody wanted to learn that. So this publisher collaborated with the great doctor, and together they assembled a complete Greek New Testament. Now, the New Testament isn't one book. It's 27. And each of them separately distributed and copied through time, right? So Erasmus had four different copies of the New Testament, but none of them were complete, not one of them. And they all came from the same family, which means we have to do more history. Okay, when Theophilus hired his copyist to copy Acts, each copy that was produced was the start of a family of documents. And this is important as we come to the science of textual criticism. Still with me here? Okay. All the copies that Erasmus had came from the same family line. In fact, they were all copies made in the same city and were many generations removed from Luke's original. And you have to understand the masterful job that Erasmus did. Uh, okay, Erasmus had some serious issues, since it's just us, I'll let you know. 
he died of a venereal disease, amongst other things. I mean, he, was, he had serious issues. But he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And I believe at the end of his life, he gave his heart to Christ. But uh, he was a Roman Catholic scholar, too. There's lots of interesting little bits of history here. But anyway, so he only had four incomplete copies of the New Testament. He actually had to make up some of the Greek from the Latin Vulcate because he didn't have any of the Greek parts for some of that, for some of it, none at all. Then he turns over his text to the printer and curiously and amazingly, the printer thought that Erasmus Greek differed too much from the accepted text of the Roman Catholic Church, the Vulgate. So he changed some of Erasmus' work. <laughs> Amazing. Can you imagine? He felt that the Latin translation was probably more trustworthy than a copy in the original language. And he thought he was sharper than the greatest Greek scholar on the face of the earth. I mean, and, and okay, it appears he was also worried about sales because if it differed too much from the Vulgate, he thought people might not buy it. So he was a little worried about that too. Anyway, the printer made thousands and thousands of copies and they did a bit of marketing and they gave this Greek text. I, can, I like this. The Greek text has a Latin name. It's called the Texas Receptus. And it means the received text, like God had handed it to them or something. You know, it was... It's marketing. But even with all this, Erasmus' work was so good that this stood as the Greek New Testament for years. In fact, centuries. Many of the English translations of the Bible, including the King James Version, are based on Erasmus' work. There's still a little more here. So now we go back to our handwritten family issues. Now remember, all the ancient copies of the Bible are handwritten. Do you really think... Anyone could make a perfect copy of the book of Acts while he was handwriting it. It's it's not easy. I've tried it. You, you should sometime try it. Take the shortest book in the Bible and try it. It's almost impossible. I couldn't do Third John. I got it all carefully. Look, I couldn't believe it. I made a mistake. Third John's only that big. It's amazingly difficult. Now, don't misunderstand. Every word of the Bible was absolutely perfect, inspired by the Holy Spirit and without error in the original manuscripts, what scholars call the autographs. But theologians know that the copies are not. So what do you do when you don't have the originals? Well, of course, you compare all the copies you have and figure out which ones belong to which families and you see, if a copy sent to a particular city had a mistake in it, or a word was smudged out, what's the next copyist going to do? Well, with the mistake, he'll think it's the original. He'll just replicate it, right? With the smudge, he'll have to guess from what he knows of Scripture and maybe make a mistake. But if you can find a copy from another family, it's not likely to have the same error. But how do you know which one's right? Well, many ways, but the simplest is to find another copy from yet another family. The two that agree are almost certainly correct. Yes? And as you get more copies from more families, you gain greater confidence that you have the correct rendering. But Erasmus only had four copies from one family. Now, over the years, scholars in different cities who had Greek copies of this or that New Testament book began to notice that there were these slight variations between their handwritten works and the printed copy of Erasmus' work. And I know this is a lot to absorb here. And if you're like me, you're saying, how sure are we that what we have now is right? 
What's the state of the New Testament now? Can we really say that we can trust it today? For sure. Absolutely. Instead of four copies, we now have over 5,000 ancient handwritten copies of the New Testament in Greek, all older than what Erasmus had. So more likely to be correct. Less mistakes. Okay, now here's where you jab that. Wake up the guy next to you. Okay. So confident are we now that theologians and textual criticism scientists who don't even believe say that the Greek we have now is essentially identical to the originals. That's how sure they are. It's identical. Luke said that Stephen was full of grace and power. I don't know about you, but that was fun for me. So, <laughs> All right, pick your sermon notes up. We're back. So, what is grace? Luke goes to some effort in his gospel to point out that Jesus, even as a child, had the grace of, often translated the favor of, God. He showed the attribute of grace that the Trinity possesses. He is the person of the Son, so what did we expect? But what about mere humans? In Acts 4.33 we read, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And now we discover Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Paul developed the word grace quite carefully in his 13 letters as it regards the church. His description could perhaps be boiled down to unmerited favor. We need it. We don't have it. So God gives it to us. Luke traveled extensively with Paul before writing the book of Acts. So I think we can trust that he was probably aiming the same way. The apostles had the unmerited favor of God in them. And it showed in their lives. And now the Hellenist, Stephen, obviously has this grace, this unmerited favor on him and in him as well. But angels are affected by grace differently than we are. They never sinned. They don't have to look at what they've done wrong in the past. Now I know we have demons and all that, but we're not going to worry about them today. As to angels, when we read, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. We can understand that the grace Michael had, the favor of God that he had, was with him from the time he was created. And so, when the time comes, he can defeat Satan. In our case, something else happens. Satan would love to keep us from remembering God's grace in our life. You can't tell them how to live, right? Don't you remember when you did that? And he's right. We did live like that. But we can answer, it's not about me or how I used to live. It's about God's grace. In fact, that God loves me even though I really did do all those things shows the wonder of his grace. Then Satan will whisper in your ear, what if they know you did that? They'll say to you, what do you think you're doing telling me how to live? I've lived a better life than you have. But we can say, I know. Isn't God's grace fantastic? He forgave me of all those sins I did and he can forgive you of all those you have done. All those you will do. Even those you wanted to do but never did. And he can turn your life around so that you don't sin like you used to. Isn't it great?
great. All because we have God's unmerited favor on us. An angel who knows God's grace in his life has confidence on his face because he knows it's not his will or power or actions that will carry him through. It's the will and the power of his creator. We can have that look on our face because not only did God create us, but he also redeemed us. It doesn't matter what the accuser or anyone else says. God's grace can carry us through. Stephen knew that. And Stephen had the face of an angel. And that brings us to the last attribute they saw on Stephen's face. Power. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes from him, you will have faith. That faith stems from the grace of God that is on you. And when that grace is fully established in your soul, you will have power. You have power. Jesus had power in his ministry. He passed that power on to the apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And now this power has passed further on to Stephen and the other Hellenist leaders. You probably noted that Stephen did what Jesus and the apostles did, great wonders and signs, miracles. Now some have actually concluded that the purpose of the power was to perform miracles. But what did Jesus say to the apostles? What did he actually say? After they received power, they would be witnesses. It's not about miracles. It's about witnessing. Miracles worked, to witness to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of eternal life in him, with first century Jews, first century believing Jews, because they were specially prepared to understand them. If you read your Bible carefully, you will find that miracles never work to draw those who won't believe close to God. They usually just make them do weird, inexplicable things. The purpose of a miracle was to witness to those who would believe, not to wow the crowd. God will only use miracles when they bring him glory, when they are a witness of him. Some guy is trying to gain fame by saying he can perform miracles. He is not witnessing for God. Maybe for himself, but certainly not for God. What I'm trying to say is that we will gain power as our faith and grace grow. And the power that we gain will be a power to witness. What form that witnessing will take, I don't know. But Jesus was clear. The purpose of the power is to show the glory of God, to witness of him. Peter knew this when he healed the lame man. Remember when we talked about that? He asked the crowds, why are, why are you looking at me? As if he had done this in his own power. And he gave the glory to God. And that witness brought people into the church. The unbelieving priests understood that this was important. They asked Peter and John whose power it was that had healed the lame man. They were afraid of the witness it would be. And they were right. <laughs> Angels have been given great power. Listen to this. This is fun. 
After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Four angels, four, will stop all the wind on the face of the earth. Now that's some power. And why will they do it? Well, to bring glory to God, to witness of God. Here's another example. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. One angel will toss some burning coals to the earth and cause all of this, even an earthquake. That's some serious power. (laughs) And why exercise that power? In his prophecy, John also wrote, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory. The glory, the power that God has given just one angel lights up the whole earth. And we must recognize that all the angels do what they do to witness of God's glory. But, and this should excite you, they can never have the power that we have. Never. They will never experience grace as we have. They'll never know faith as we do. The wisdom they have is great, but it is not a gift from God in the way that ours is. And there's no coming of the Holy Spirit into their lives like ours. They were created with Him there in all His fullness, yes. But we alone of God's creatures know the wonder of the Holy Spirit driving out the evil from within us. Stephen knew this. Stephen lived this. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What did they see? What does an angel's face look like? You see the Holy Spirit in angel's face. Wisdom is evident there. Faith in God gives assurance to that visage. The grace so freely given lends confidence the power of their creator is there. It's really all about our creator and redeemer. It's really all about Jesus. Witnessing for Jesus. For Stephen, it was all about Jesus. And they knew it. They saw it in his face. They saw Stephen, but they saw more than Stephen. They saw what you'd see in an angel's face. They saw the glory of God. Only leaves one question. What do those around you see in your face? Let's pray.